If you're a regular listener of The Vincast, Australia's premier podcast about wine, no doubt you are a lover of authentic and innovative Australian wine. And the one-stop destination to secure wines like that is Different Drop, our supporter. Different Drop is an online wine retailer based in Sydney that have done all of the hard work for you in securing and researching some of these beautiful small batch wines from around Australia from a lot of really exciting producers uh, who are using different techniques uh, and using sustainable practices a lot of the time. You can go there and search for wines based on grape variety, based on region. Uh, you can see if they have a particular producer you're interested in. And even if they don't, if you can, if you request it, who knows? Maybe they can find it for you. You can put together your own or buy one of their ready to go mixed cases. And, uh, in support of the podcast, listeners of the Vincast need to put in Vincast Vino at purchase and you'll get $25 off your first purchase over $100. Thank you, Different Drop, for your support of the Vincast and for your support of all those great Australian winemakers. On episode 57 of the Vincast, I chat with AJ Hoadley, otherwise known as Love Your Letter Wines. AJ is a gorilla small batch winemaker in the great southern region of Western Australia, producing some really exciting wines in very distinctive labels. I also ask you a question at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. Hello there, Vincasters, and welcome back to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and uh, it's great to have you on board for another week. I uh, hope you enjoyed the uh, the special episode that went out uh, on Sunday with uh, Campbell Burton, one of the organisers of uh, the Soul for Wine event, which, of course, is on this Sunday, and I hope to see you there. Of course, I'm going to be there drinking some lovely sulfur-free wines and eating some lovely food. Um, again, no responses as far as the uh, the wino asks questions from the last two weeks. So, uh, guys, I'd love to hear from you. Please stay tuned for the end of the episode because uh, I'm going to have a question for you based on today's episode. But I uh, also haven't had any Ask the Wino questions uh, for this episode. So, again, guys, uh, I really want to hear from you. If you have a particular question you want to ask me, whether it's about myself or whether it's about wine in general, really almost any question, uh, if you'd like to hear my uh, my thoughts or uh, an answer, just uh, send me a, a tweet or Instagram, Facebook on the website. doesn't really matter. Um, but if you are using social media, just use hashtag AskTheWino because um, I'd love to uh, answer any questions you might have. Uh, also, I wanted to let you know that um, if you go to my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, or one word, um, and subscribe, on the 27th of July at about 6 o'clock, I'm going to do uh, my first sort of a trial run uh, live streaming tasting with a friend and former guest of the podcast, James Dawson, uh, who is a sommelier, uh, and we're going to taste some Australian Grenache. We're basically going to do a, a bit of a McLaren Vale versus Barossa Valley Grenache taste-off. Uh, 
uh, if you look at the show notes on the on the website, I've actually I'm actually going to list the wines that we're going to taste. But uh, to make it a bit easier for you, um, I've spoken with the guys at Different Drop, uh, and they're going to put together a, a little pack of uh, of the wines you can buy, and you'll get a bit of a discount on them. And they can actually send them out to you. So if you wanted to, you can actually uh, subscribe onto the live stream and taste along with us and ask questions and make comments and get interactive with the tasting. So uh, make sure to go to intrepidwino.com um, and find the episode, episode 57. In the show notes, I'll actually list the wines that we're going to taste. So uh, I'm really interested to, to try this new thing. Uh, I hope it works out uh, and I uh, hope you'll tune in. Now, for this week, I've got uh, an episode that I actually recorded when I was over in WA uh, about a month ago uh, with AJ Hoadley, or as he's known in the Great Southern or in Denmark, Hodor. Um, AJ, who originally comes from Queensland, uh, is making some really exciting wines uh, under his label, A Love Your Letter, um, using some different techniques and, and sort of changing people's perception of Great Southern in particular. Uh, so it was a really fantastic chat. Um, I do hope you enjoyed. If you did, let myself and AJ know, uh, and I'll see you on the other side. Well, here we are on a uh, beautiful, sunny Friday here, uh, just outside of Denmark in Great Southern, and obviously uh, I'm sitting here with uh, Mr. Hoadley. Now, can I call you, do I call you AJ? Yeah, sure, that would work. All right, fantastic. So tell me, AJ, as far as the, the wine story, where does the wine story begin for you? Where, what was your kind of the early interaction that um, made you want to follow a, a career in wine? Where are you from originally? Uh, I come from a wheat farm in Queensland. Oh, really? Yeah. Like for sort of north-ish? No, west. Kind of west of Toowoomba. Okay. Uh, you know, very, very flat country. Mm-hmm. Quite dry. Uh, heavy, heavy black clay soils. So my natural drive was to move somewhere green, hilly, uh, with friable, friable soils. Well, can you think back to the sort of the earliest interaction you had with wine? Like who, who introduced you to wine or what was the context that made you kind of think, oh, this is this something. What was a wow moment? Yeah. Do you, do you have, did you have an epiphany moment for wine? Uh, yeah. It was at an end of vintage party in Burgundy. I was trying to, I was trying to earn enough money to fly back to Australia. I've been backpacking around France. And so I got some great picking jobs. Mm-hmm. I worked in Beaujolais. Uh, basically drank too much for, for three weeks. Hitchhiked up to Burgundy. And uh, so they brought out this old, uh, old wine from Pougny Montrachet. That's where the vineyard was. Mm-hmm. So it was an aged Chardonnay. That's all I know about it. I don't know how old it was. Uh, and it was... It was just, I mean, I'd never tasted anything like it. It stunned me. And I thought, that's when I started to think this whole wine game might be interesting. There's something to this. Mm-hmm. I had no history of it. Mm-hmm. My family had no history of it. Nobody showed me any wines growing up. Was it just the wine or was it partly also the context and the kind of the the conviviality, the, the festive nature of end of vintage party? What, you know, do you remember what you were eating with it? It was just the wine itself. It's the wine. It was stunning. 
in a in a flavor sense, flavor mm -hmm. textural sense. Not that I even thought about it in those terms, but it was it was like nothing I'd ever really tasted before. Uh, you know, probably had you drunk much context. wine before that? Would you be much of a wine drinker? Not really, no. Your parents weren't wine drinkers? Not at all. No? No. Just Bundaberg? <laughs> Nothing, really. It was pretty much a teetotal context. I tried a little bit of cooking wine at home, that was it. Yeah. Hideous. I'm surprised that you didn't turn you off wine for the rest of your life. It did, probably for, you know, for about 10 years. Sure. Um, but then it was quite a, after that kind of epiphany, uh, you know, it took quite a while to work out how you would in Australia. You know, there, there were these established wine producers and they all seemed like, you know, to, in my mind they were all family operations. You just inherited this this kind of business. Um, I didn't realise that you would go and study winemaking. didn't seem necessarily logical. It's something, it's something you would do. But at some point, I just decided to, to follow it. So I moved down to the Yarra Valley and uh, got a job pruning for the Bortleys. Was there any reason you chose the Yarra Valley in particular, or was it just coincidence that that's where you ended up? Uh, I guess it was... Uh, it was near Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I did like Melbourne. Quite a bit and you know it was a beautiful place cool climate uh, and when was that that was I must have been 87 okay yeah 86 maybe sure so 86 was that was when the Bordley was established in Europe wasn't it yeah they had bought the old 86. Chateau Urinia right I'm not sure when they started there but I just had like the most basic pruning job sure just cutting new vines down it, it, they were establishing new vineyards then and that was opposite opposite the old shadow urinia mm -hmm. uh near dixon's creek i did a little bit of cheese making in the yarrow valley i stayed there for a few years never really got a vintage position and actually ended up going to mildura for my first vintage job which was at the biggest crush in Australia that year, which is El Buronga Hill. Mm -hmm. I had a lab job. Okay. And it was so uh, unromantic. <laughs> <laughs> running running around collecting samples from these giant, Thanks. you know, 70, 70 ton, 100 ton ferments. Uh, but that was actually a great place to start because... Uh, I would say there's a, there's a kind of romance to that whole setup as well. I think more in the people that were working there. You know, this kind of cobbled together bunch of truck drivers and shearers who came to do vintage and earn a bit of dough. Um, you know, so more, more so, more romance in the people than in the wines necessarily. Yeah, sure, of course. But it was a fascinating experience for sure. And I think quite valuable. Certainly in terms of learning one analysis, you know, after the first thousand sulfur uh, aspiration tests, you, uh, you nail it pretty well. So in terms of just getting basic skills down. Mm. And I, I'd started, uh, I'd enrolled in the Chelsea University 
wine science degree at that sure. stage too. Sure. And I was working, I'd been working in vineyards in the Yarra, but not in wineries. Okay. Which also in my mind was very important to, I guess, just to understand from, you know, from, from, from the, the basic point about vineyard establishment and about pruning and trellising, uh, canopy management, those sort of things. Um, so kind of having that experience sort of from the ground up, as it were, did that kind of give you an, did that kind of give you an appreciation for, um, wanting to kind of be involved with the whole aspect and, and not thinking about qualities coming from the vineyard, you know, not from winery necessarily. In my mind, it was, that was essential really to take a holistic view I mean, it's just it's just a logical thing. You have to understand something about vineyards. Sure. You, don't, you can't start with, in my mind, you can't just start with a wine. I mean, that's quite that's quite well understood. You can't even start with the fruit. You can't just start with the fruit. Yeah. You need to start with the soil. <clears throat> you need to start with the vine. Mm. So, uh, so it was funny to go from that to, you know, to this this uh, big Mildura ninety eight thousand ton crush. Sure. That whole experience, where basically the wine is starting when the fruit gets delivered to the yeah you know, loading uh, dock. Uh, big trucks arrive, yeah, and they dump. I was in the premium end of the winery too. Wow. I didn't even see any of the Sultana. Sure, getting punched through big Marzola screw presses. Sure, go but to, still, it came in truckloads, giant four liter bag and box type things. <laughs> that was the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> But there were actually interesting things there. Um, we were doing some sparkling base or I guess commercial level sparkling. So we were doing juice oxidation there, mm -hmm. oxidation. Okay. Uh, and that was something I hadn't really thought of. What? You've lost me. What's hyperoxidation? It's basically bubbling air into, into the pressings of say hot climate, Pinot and Chardonnay for sparkling. That's where the bubbles were coming from? Oh, to just to basically uh, oxidize all the phenolics in that juice so it could be then fermented, cleaned up, and used in a commercial quality product. Right. Yeah, and that was something, I mean, that was a, that was a technique that wasn't really that widely talked about, say, at universities. No. But interestingly, it kind of fed into what, into my approach with whites now, mm -hmm. which is all about, you know, maybe, maybe not hyperoxidation, but certainly a light oxidation. Sure, sure. On the juice. Um, was it was the experience of working in basically the biggest kind of commercial winemaking endeavour in Australia? Did that kind of give you an idea about sort of what you didn't want to do? I mean, I know, like, from my experience, um, studying the Masters of Wine Business was fantastic. It gave me a really amazing insight into, into you know, the wine business, wine industry, the wine markets, that kind of thing. But I kind of feel like I came out of it saying, that's fantastic. Now I know what I don't want to do, what I want to, you know, what I what what's what's missing from from wine as far as i'm concerned you know the the, the beauty the, the the uniqueness of it was it a similar sort of experience for you 
It's certainly, um, I mean, I'd always wanted to, I'd always wanted to focus on working in small to medium scale uh, and in cool climate areas. Sure. Which, you know, that there was quite a bit of excitement turn of the century in Australia about exploring new regions. So, you know, Canberra, Orange, Tasmania, mm -hmm. Adelaide Hills, so on. Uh, and it was kind of, I mean, it wasn't necessarily by plan that I went there, but it was a really good, that I went to Gurunga Hill, but it was a really good starting point. Having seen that, to then go and work on a smaller scale mm -hmm. in cool climate areas mm -hmm. and just see the, I guess, the, 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 the vast difference in the qualities of the fruit sure. that was coming in. Sure. And you always, you know, every vintage, uh, well, particularly early on, every vintage experience, whether it be in a different zone in Australia or overseas, you know, you, you get, you taste a range of flavours and you see a range of different fruit and you kind of lock in those flavour profiles in your memory, mm -hmm. I suppose. Mm -hmm. So it's good to have a full breadth of that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how long were you in Mildura for? Just one vintage. Just one vintage? So, uh, a few months. Okay. But that was must have been a pretty eye-opening experience. It was. Even in a short period of time. Where did you um, head after that? So then I went to Canberra uh, to work for Hardy's. Mm -hmm. And they were establishing their, their Canberra winery. That was when Hardy's were, I guess, looking at um, small-scale wineries. In, uh, they had a real uh, regional focus. Sure. And I mean that that winery is not, it's not it's not owned by Hardy's anymore. But mm. that was that was a really key experience, I guess. Um, and probably the, for the main reason was uh, working with Alex Mackay for a few years there, in between doing pruning and uh, overseas vintages. But Alex got me into as, as well as sort of seeing amazing cool climate shiraz the first time mm. and being really stunned by that some mm. of the some of the older vineyards around canberra just like it really excited me the just the characters coming out of the ferments from that where it was you know just this mind-blowing uh exploding jungle of characters sure which i, I and this you know this crazy stalkiness uh really got me excited about churros but at the same time, Alex was was very much into Piedmontese wines, particularly uh, Barola Barbaresca, and he was he very generously uh, shared some of those wines Great. with us. Sure, during the vintage, we would have these terrific tastings, organise these tastings, and um, and so I decided I really wanted, I really needed to go there and work there and just experience like just immerse myself in that mm -hmm. in that world for i mean it wasn't for that long and it was kind of you know one vintage at a time can you remember what it was that you were responding to as far as those wines from from piedmont or? i think I, I found them confronting initially say italian whites in general that they had a you know that they were more phenolic they weren't afraid of elements like bitterness 
you know, they, they weren't afraid of a little bit of colour. Uh, you could see that there was something different in the handling of the, the juices quite often. So, and that being a, an oxidative approach. Mm -hmm. And they just seemed, you know, in another world to what was typically being made in Australia, mm. even at that time. Mm. And so that was kind of fascinating. And, uh, and I found the, you know, the, my first uh, Nebbiolo wines quite, quite confronting. You know, there, there's an austerity and there's that whole world of tannin that opens up yeah. in front of you. Yeah. And it's not necessarily... You know, it's not something that you fall in love with immediately. I think you have to come to those wines on their terms. Sure. And I quite like that, that whole approach too. Uh, and then I guess I found that that's, you know, that, that, that's the approach of the, the, the winemakers in Piedmont. It's much more, um, you know, we're, we're making these wines. These are the wines of our region. These are the wines that we love. Uh, and if you're interested, you know, come, come and try them. Mm. But if but if you're not, or you're not ready for them, or you don't like them, that's fine too. You don't feel that there are, you know, still a lot of Nebbiolo wines made in that area that are trying to sort of bow to international trends or certain people's palates to, to you know, in an effort to sell more wine? Probably, probably less now than when I was there. I mean, the, the whole... Uh, modernist traditionalist debate was very hot at that sure, time. Sure, Which was, I mean, I was there 02, 03. Mm -hmm. So I've tasted a lot of stuff, you know, where the, it seems that they've done just enough to just soften the tannins out a little bit more mm -hmm. and, then, and then kind of offset that with a you know, small barrel, sometimes new oak kind of thing, which, you know, they're still great wines, but then I kind of felt like they weren't necessarily representing tradition and, and the, the truth of Nebbiolo, at least in that area. What is truth? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, you know, I, I knew a few, I know a few people there who have, who were using bariques mm -hmm. and exploring that whole world of how that would work mm -hmm. with some of their wine. Mm -hmm. And now I find them, uh, looking back at their, at those wines, so the 99s, 2000s, 2001s, and being annoyed that they can still see oak in the wines and moving away from that yeah. now. Yeah. I don't think they regret uh, the whole experiment and the, the whole experience. And I wouldn't say that's everybody doing that, but I know, I know some people who are very much more committed now to a, a more traditionalist, Kind of approach. Sure. Um, and so you worked uh, a vintage there? Two. Two vintages consecutively? Yeah, at a, at a little place, uh, Cantina del Pino, the winery of the pine. Right. Not of the Pinot Noir. Not of the Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've heard, I, I think there is a bit of Pinot in there. There's certainly some Chardonnay and Riesling and stuff like that. But... I, I think uh, Saraco, Paolo Saraco, he's the... He's, he's quite heavily invested in Pinot. Really? But he's in the kind of high langer. Altalanga. Altalanga. Well, I was just translating for the, for the listeners. Yeah. yeah. I think people know. I, I'm sure, I'm is. pretty sure that they'd be so sophisticated they would understand Altalanga. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some beautiful sparkling ones come from there. Yeah. 
Um, cool. And, and so, and this was all whilst you continued your studies with Charles Sturt? Yeah, so that was the distance education thing. Sure. You know, you'd rush to get ready before residential schools kind of try to swing between Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere, just really chasing as much experience as I could at yep. that time. Yep. Just packing it all in. Yeah. And, and moving between, I mean, I worked at Canberra for a couple of years mm -hmm. and then a uh, bit of vintage in Tasmania. Okay. Had Bay of Fires. So really chasing the cooler climate stuff. Yeah, that's... And, and also, I mean, I was quite... I always loved Riesling. That's always been a, a fascination of mine. And Did you do any vintage in Germany at all? I never could, no. It's just the paperwork. Too much German paperwork. Really? Yeah. That was easy. Like, that, for me, Germany I was I'm the married, easiest. I'm married to a German. Really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, that, 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 that's funny. But I did. Uh, but you, have, have I you did travel? visit a lot of Germany. Yeah, German okay, cool. Too. Particularly. Do you have a favourite reason for Riesling? I would say. I would say. Uh, They're all different. Have be, it'd have to be the muzzle. Yeah. yeah. For sure. It's because, pretty incredible that place. Yeah. Um. So. You, so you obviously you know there's some great Rieslings up in the Canberra district and you know there's some lovely Rieslings from Tasmania but, what you know did you kind of think about anywhere else to sort of get experience or did you go and work anywhere else to sort of sort of see their reason in Australia or even New Zealand? I, I, I can tell you where I didn't think of was Great Southern <laughs> uh, because I wasn't even aware of Great Southern yeah at that time you know I tried to tried a few I tried uh, a few cracking Rieslings out of here but it didn't really I didn't really realize that it is kind of uh, a Riesling hotbed sure in Australia, I think it was ironically uh, a, a, a hotbed. Yeah, <laughs> in, a, in a cool climate. Um, so what what eventually did sort of lead you here? It was I was actually back in Italy uh, working in Abruzzo, and then I heard there was a position available in Denmark, Denmark in Western Australia, mm -hmm. in Great Southern, as opposed to Denmark in as opposed to the, the, the other Denmark. Yeah. The, the fake Denmark. <laughs> the pretender. Yeah. Uh, so so I, came, uh, I came back from the vintage in Abruzzo and started working at Castelli Estate. Sure. Here in Denmark. And so we were only doing a small amount for Castelli at that time, but we were doing quite a bit of contract winemaking right. for other people, for small vineyards. And I guess it was... Um, you know, I found it really uh, stimulating having that many vineyards to work with, mm -hmm. and really started to discover the um, the range of, uh, of of different sub sub regional climates. Yeah, in the Great Southern, the Great Southern is such a huge area. Yes, it is. But then you start noticing, you know, my God, we've got um, there's the sort of aromatic varieties from Denmark, and then. Denmark Pinot, and you can make these incredible linear Chardonnays down here. Uh, and then, you know, you head inland just a little way, and you're getting away from that coastal influence, and you're starting to get uh, a little bit more continental, but still quite cool, and you get this fantastic cold spicy nice. Shiraz yeah. from south of Barker, and 
floral Rieslings. I mean, that, those were the things that most impressed me, and so that's kind of why I, apart from my natural inclination to make Shiraz and Riesling, uh, but I was I was really stunned by the quality mm-hmm. that I was seeing in these vineyards, and then finding you know, the, the the Riesling fruit from Prongarup, uh Chardonnay from Prongarup, fantastic, and some really interesting little pockets of Shiraz up there too. Sure. Uh, Pinot from Prongarup, and then you know, getting into so a little further west, a little bit warmer, uh, more full-bodied Shiraz from Franklin, or even North Barker. And there's there's some amazing vineyard resources around here. You know, quite quite uh, old established vineyards. So you know, thirty-five years old. It feels so isolated that you know even. 40 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, I wouldn't have ever considered sort of people would come here and plant a vineyard. Because, what on earth were they doing? Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I know, I remember reading, like, you know, I think it was in my studies, I guess, um, that the biggest influence in Western Australian viticulture was, you know, machinery and better roads and better transportation, logistics, that kind of thing has really influenced it. But back in those days, I, you, you can imagine that everything would be, Sort of pretty hands-on. It must have been pretty basic. Small, small batch. I bet the stuff. mobile reception was appalling. God, it's still appalling. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so at what point did you start to think about kind of doing your own thing? Uh, you know, once again, it kind of happened by accident, really. All the best things happen by accident. They do. You kind of stumble into these things. You know, it was just a... Really, love you, Oleta. Just a hobby that got out of control. Now, just before mm-hmm. I forget, love you, Oleta. Where's the name? What's the name? Where does the name come from? There's uh, there's a few layers to that. Uh, firstly, the you know probably the most famous thing that the Hodleys ever did was to this was in Melbourne too was to invent the violet crumble. So there's that element. I want to celebrate. Is it actually your family or is it just an... Well, I mean, you know, distantly related. I'm pretty sure there's, you know, distant cousins. They they must have somewhere back, somewhere going back. I remember back in the day there was just... It was like there was almost kind of like that Ford versus Holden thing, but Violet Crumble versus um, the Crunchy. Crunchy. Yeah. And I hated Crunchy. Oh, everyone. Who was buying those things? I think probably the best... And one of the most memorable advertising slogans for me was the way the way that shatters that matters. The way it shatters that matters. And I loved Violet Crumbles for that reason. I would, I would hazard that they're not quite the too. same uh, since Nestle took them over. Mm. I'm, you know, they're still doing a wonderful job. I actually, I bought one for the kids not long ago just to show them a piece of Australian history and, and, a, piece of, and a piece of Hoadley history. Piece of Hoadley history, yeah. Uh, so the other thing, love your letter. There's a little, uh, I guess, a Piedmontese inspiration there. It's it was, love your letter is uh, a song that you sing if you're if you have a big night out, at the end of the night, you've had a few too many drinks. Mm-hmm. It's not an actual song as such. So uh, it's the Italian version of "Show Me the Way to Go Home." Yeah, you could, you could put it like that. Okay. 
basically you're, you're kind of hallucinating these little violets coming up in the field. Okay. Is as it was explained to me with my with my fairly average Italian. So that did you, you have look. moments like that when you were in in Piedmont? There may have been one or two. <laughs> I won't. Ha- I won't keep you. I won't have you on the record saying that. No, I'll edit that you out. Edit that out. <laughs> Uh, so so that's that's where La Violetta comes from. Okay, cool. And you know, it's kind of... Uh, we, we were making... Uh, I saw this Shiraz in Barrel when I came to work at Castelli and it was a, we were making for a client of ours, Calvin River wines at the time. And I thought, gee, I would really like to see that. Um, maybe less extracted mm. and less new oak. Mm-hmm. And just kind of treated very gently, like yeah. Pinot. Yeah. I wonder if I wonder, if they, I wonder if they would sell me a couple of ton of that fruit. Yeah. Yeah, and throw in some whole bunch and maybe a couple of handfuls of Viognier. Sure. And so I, I took a few ton and I did some different treatments, some small ferments of that, and the wine was, you know, I wasn't expecting to be happy with it. I was quite critical, but there was. There was really nothing I was unhappy with in that wine. It was just a Kraken, medium weight, cool climate, Shiraz. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to persist with that. And then kind of by accident too, I started making Das Sacrileg in 2008, which is the barrel fermented Riesling. Sure. Uh, which I've just tasted. Yeah, that's the 14. So, so there was, uh, my colleague had a little bit of, Riesling off his vineyard and I thought you know I'd I'd been fascinated with the idea of barrel fermented Riesling since uh, you know my visits to producers in Alsace and the Mosul and the Mm -hmm. R and so on and and so I wanted to just give it give it a try and see how it turned out and and not add anything either just let the juice oxidation do the fining mm-hmm. and see how it came out. And, you know, we were freaking out at this brown juice and then this kind of, uh, you know, pale, pale gold colored wine. And then it did a little bit of malolactic in barrel. Mm-hmm. And people would just come through and say, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Mm. That's what a stupid idea. Mm. Why, why don't you, why would you ruin Riesling like that? <laughs> wow. Just think of all those German producers ruining their Riesling. That's right. Over and over again. Yeah. For h- hundreds of years, have been ruining Riesling. <laughs> so, and I found the, the wine that came out of it was, you know, fascinating and really intriguing in a way that it wouldn't have been if I'd made it in the classic Aussie style. Sure. I didn't really, I wasn't really sure if anyone was interested to buy it. So you know, I knocked up this label in five minutes. Uh, Where'd you come up with the name of Das Sackley Leg? Oh, that's, that was kind of my wife's idea. She's, <laughs> she's from the Rhine. Oh, there you go. And I was kind of, I was asking her what would be, you know, what's a name in German that means something transgressive, you know, you've done something really terrible. Sure. You know, you've screwed up this beautiful Riesling. I'm assuming so the, the sacrilege. Sacrilegious, yeah. Because what it was and shows that. As opposed to the sacrament, which is different. That's right. 
Just a very strong Germanic font. Yeah, cool. Very. First time I saw it in a in a shop, or I thought it was uh, actually a German wine or Austrian. Beautiful. I saw uh, at Raisin Down Under back in January. Only Lausen had it. Was it February? Yeah. Only Lausen had a good chuckle. <laughs> so that, that was nice. And he's Mr. Riesling, isn't he? Captain Riesling. No, no, that's Stuart Pickett. Well, it's Captain okay. Riesling. So he's, doc- he's Dr. Riesling. He's Dr. Riesling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've nailed it. So that, that's kind of where I started with, uh, you know, a small Shiraz project, a small Riesling project. Yeah. Uh, and, that, you know, that, those... I wasn't really trying to, I really had no plan. I hadn't even thought would I sell these wines or what. I just kind of wanted to make them. But you must have shown them to someone, because someone must have I showed them to a few people, but, you know, I don't really, I never have tried to sell a bottle of wine in my life, I think, I can honestly say so. Uh, But then, you know, people would see them and then there was some interest, and so I, I kept making them. And then... You know, a few more things came up. Another really intriguing vineyard uh, north of Mount Barker. And so the Up, the Up Shiraz was born. Uh, and yeah, so the, the, the labels have kind of just snowballed mm-hmm. from there whenever I, I had an idea. So still mo- mostly working with Riesling and Shiraz? It's Riesling and Shiraz, but there's so much other fun to be had. We've got a uh, GMT, a Grenache, Levedra Tempranillo. There's a little orange wine, Gewürz, is very dear to my heart when I can get it. So I do a little orange wine from Riesling and Gewürz. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a, a Shiraz Pinot blend. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, Speckburgunder Syrah. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a little bit of Muscat Silvana in there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is the interesting... German name for Sauvignon Blanc. Yes. I guess it's a, it's an affectionate doff of the cap to Bill Downey and the Thousand Candles. Thousand candles. Yeah. It works anyway. Uh, Bill, Bill Downey, a former guest of the podcast. Okay. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? <laughs> okay, cool. And, and sort of, have you really changed the way you've been making the wines that much? How many, how many years have you been, how many vintages have you got under your belt for the Love Your Letter? Oh, well... We started in 08, so what is, what is it now? 15. What is, that, how, what is that out to? Is that eight? Is that the eighth vintage we just did? Uh, yeah, it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I would say that the the style of the Dasakri leg took a few years to get to where I wanted it mm-hmm. in terms of uh, picking the fruit at the right time to retain that tightness and the acid line through through barrel ferment and the time on least. So, you know, I was pretty happy with it from around about 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. Pretty okay. happy with those wines. Uh, and so probably the, the fruit sourcing changed a little bit. I've, I've found you know, this, this year I sourced raising from eight different vineyards around the area. So all treated separately? All, all separately, yeah. Try to keep them separate as much as I can. Mm-hmm. So even if it's like 150 kilos of some really interesting riesling from a little vineyard in Denmark, then I want to I want to take that 
and see if it can find a place in something. I like to have lots of options. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, things that kind of just happen, like these... Uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about this wine I'm about to pour myself. So that's the Spunk Nat. Spunk Nat. Yeah. Quite, uh, quite... Uh, that was a label that troubled, troubled Campbell Madison a bit. He said he, he could, not in a thousand years, not with that name. Well, you know, it has a couple of different meanings, Spunk. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just, it's just a pun on spunk rat, I think. Spunk rat? Yeah. I'm not familiar with that term. No. I think it's what uh, the ladies call uh, a cute guy, a spunk rat. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't sound particularly it. positive as far as I'm concerned, but anyway. He's spunky, but rat? Hmm. I guess it's all about context. Absolutely. I can I can imagine them calling like surfers a spunk rat. Yeah, so a surfer, a hot surfer would be a spunk rat. You know, because it's sort of like he's hot, but geez, I wish he'd have a shower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, who who knows where these ideas really come from? No, I think they're the best ideas. Like they just sort of pop into your head, and then for whatever reason, you just get really attached to it, and then, and then you can't be dissuaded from it. And you realise, uh, I have a vision, and I can make it. A reality. Sure. All I have to do is it's going to turn spend heads. some time on, on, on Apple Pages and uh, pay for the labels. Yeah. So people can, um, there's, they're in selected places, people can buy these in Melbourne, Sydney, Perth. There's a reasonably up-to-date list on the Love Violetta website. Which is? LoveVioletta.com. Okay. Dot .au. Yep. And if, you know, if, if you want to find out, you know, the, what's the best way of getting in contact with you to, to, um, to make sure you secure some of these wines? Oh, there's a little form you can fill in on the website. You can join the mailing list. Yeah. And eventually you'll get a response. Sure. Uh, working very soon on a mail out for, it was going to be an autumn, uh, autumn mail out. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's going to be, it looks like it's going to be winter. The winter selection. Yeah. I'm thinking about, I've got some old museum stocks. Oh, cool. Oh, some of these wines. And I was thinking about putting some, putting a few, like a little six pack together or something. Mm -hmm. Or a dozen where you could taste. That would certainly tell a story. Of, of, of vintages. Of, of the, of the Das Sacrileg and, you know, maybe La Chornia as well. You can put, you can put me down for one of those. You know, I look, I look through in the laundry and I come across a box of this or that every now and then. Yeah. Um, and I think, well, why not? It, it's probably time. It'd be interesting to look at like a range of uh, sacrilege vintages. Yeah. Awesome. And, and as far as, um, people keeping in contact on, uh, stuff like social media, Twitter, Instagram, oh, on Twitter, yeah. um, very lazy on Instagram. I think I've posted one picture It's a very nice one though. So <laughs> do check it out. Uh, Facebook, not, no. No, but they, they would just be, so Twitter and one photo on Instagram is just love your letter. Yeah. Quite active. Spend too much time on Twitter. Pretty uh, fun. It's pretty addictive. Yeah. It's uh, at, at love your letter wines. Fantastic. That's easy. Awesome. Well, obviously, um, you know, it's great to, to actually share a wine with you in this beautiful part of the world. Uh, again, obviously I highly recommend people come and visit Denmark because it is, uh, it's very lovely. 
might be better to come when it's a little bit warmer. It uh, it does. It's getting a bit cold at night. It's still crisp, isn't it? It's nearly lunchtime and it's still crisp. Yeah. But um, look, thank you for your time. Uh, I'm going to have a little bit more of this lovely Riesling. It's been a pleasure. The sun's over the yard. Um, I might might have a splash myself. Wonderful. It's a pleasure um, to meet you. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. And thank you. Or as they say in Italy, chin chin. Chin chin. Amico mio. Or as they say in Germany, Prost. Yeah, Prost. And thank you very much, guys, for listening to another episode of the Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and you can follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and the podcast on Twitter is at the Vincast. You can follow me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Intrepid Wino. And also, if you put in Intrepid Wino into YouTube, you'll find my channel there. But uh, you can find all of the various information at intrepidwino.com, as well as every episode of the podcast and lots of different writings that I've done in the past. Uh, I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or whatever app you might use to listen to podcasts. And that way you can download the episode and listen to it at your leisure. Um, If you do that, I would love for you to give it a rating and a review because it's always great to get some feedback and uh, and for people to help get the word out about this podcast. The Wino Asks question for this week is, what's the oldest Riesling you've ever tasted? Uh, mine, I think, was possibly in 1978. It was in Germany. It was pretty insane. But, um, yeah, let me know. Uh, if you like old Rieslings, let me know. Uh, I hope you'll tune in for next week's episode, uh, and I hope to see you on Sunday. But until next time, bye.